0: Okay, good morning. Good morning. Turn your Bibles to uh, James chapter 5. James chapter 5. As uh, Nathan Busnitz mentioned, I'm an OT guy. Love the Old Testament, so whenever I get an opportunity to teach, preach, uh, I choose something from the Old Testament because I find it fascinating. So today we're going to be mostly in the Old Testament. Excuse me, <clears throat> but um, we're going to start out in James. We're going to start out in James. Before we begin, let me open us up in a word of prayer. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we are grateful for the opportunity we have to study your word. We're grateful for this church, the leadership of this church. We pray that you would give them wisdom. We pray that you would bless this church, bless our fellowship. We pray that this church would be centered around the teaching of your word, the preaching of your word, uh, that our lives would be uh, transformed by your word, that we would come to resemble Christ more and more. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to have Sharp minds help us to see from your word what you would have us to learn. Pray, Lord, that we would be encouraged in your word. I thank you, Lord, for this fellowship group and uh, just uh, the encouragement that it is to me. We thank you, Lord, for Christ. We pray, all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Okay, James five. Last time that I uh, preached, uh, last time that I preached, I talked about Job. We were in the book of James as well. And uh, I talked about Job. Job is my uh, fascination book. It's my favorite book, uh, the book that I've probably studied the most of. Uh, but <clears throat> Mark Tatlock, when he asked me to, to preach, he said, you can preach on anything that you want, and, uh, which is uh, a help and also uh, a little bit of a hindrance because <laughs> there's a lot to preach on. So how do you just choose uh, what to preach on? Uh, so I decided to continue on from James, Uh, We're going to take a look at Elijah. So, uh, remember, last time that I preached, last time that I talked to you, I described James as a painter. I described the book of James as a painting. And James, in his attempt to describe Christ, in his explanation of who Christ is, he kind of paints a picture and he paints all over the place. James is, the book of James is like a canvas. And, uh, He starts painting up in the corner up here and he talks about taming the tongue and he goes down and he paints in the other corner down here and he talks about steadfastness. He talks about Job and Elijah. and He talks about all these different things and at times they can seem like they're a little disjointed. Uh, You know, if if, uh, even if we read the very ending of the book of James here. Chapter 5, verse 19. This is how James ends his book. He says, My brothers... If anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. The end. It's not like, thank you for reading my my epistle. Uh, Grace to you. Peace. I hope to come visit you soon. He just ends in, in that way. So James can seem like it's a little... Abrupt at times. He kind of moves from thing to thing. Uh, But James is very, very intentional in what he includes in the book. We saw that with Job. Uh, The steadfastness of Job is what we what I preached on last time. We're also going to see that with Elijah today. So think of James as a painter. He's painting ultimately a portrait of Christ. And he's saying, look at all of these different people, look at the steadfastness of Job. Think about the steadfastness of Christ. Uh, Look at Elijah as a man of prayer, a righteous man who prays. Ultimately, he's painting a portrait of Christ. So let's read uh, James 5, 16 to 18. I'm going to describe the context a little bit, but we're actually going to be 16 to 18. Chapter 5 16 to 18, therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Or the effective prayer of a righteous person has great power. Uh, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain. And the earth bore its fruit. Well, within this context, within this section, James, in a very, very interesting way, he's talking about the prayer of faith. Talking about the prayer of faith. He talks about uh, someone who is sick praying for healing. I'm not going to talk about that necessarily today. I'm going to let Pastor Harry uh, delve into that uh, text of scripture specifically about the prayer of faith. But what I want us to be encouraged by today, what I want us to think about and examine today is prayer. Uh, Generally, I'm saying prayer, but I want us to think about our own prayer lives. I want us to think about how we pray. How do we communicate with God? What does that look like? How, How can we really flesh that out and be defined and characterized as people of prayer? Well, James gives the example of Elijah. I don't know uh, if you've ever had the opportunity beforehand to do an in-depth study on the life of Elijah, but it's crazy. (laughs) Elijah has a crazy life. How he's described, I'm going to go through, I'm going to talk a little bit about Elijah, help us to understand, he's kind of an enigmatic character. He's a... He's a very interesting character, but what I want us to pay a special attention to, I'm going to talk about Elijah in a little bit. But I want us to pay, especially to pay attention to verse 17. James says Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. Okay, James is saying Elijah's like you, Elijah's like me, and I want us, reading the letter, writing the letter, to be encouraged about prayer because of who Elijah was, what he did and you're uh, thinking that you're similar to Elijah. You should think about Elijah as someone with a nature with a character like ours. You may not relate very closely to Elijah okay let's I want I want to just do a, a very cursory study, very cursory explanation on Elijah. what was this character like because, uh, it's i find that it's quite difficult to relate to elijah i find that it's quite difficult to relate to elijah if you turn to first kings first kings chapter 17 <clears throat> 1 kings 17 this is the very first time that elijah is mentioned very first time that elijah is mentioned first kings 17 I'm going to talk about Ahab as well. I'm going to build for us the context here and help us to understand what was going on in Israel at this time, what was Elijah's role, and how did prayer influence and impact what Elijah was doing. Okay, 1 Kings 17, verse 1. Now Elijah, the Tishbite of Tishbe in Gilead, said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. This is our introduction to Elijah. Our introduction. He shows up on the scene. He has no introduction other than this. There's no no explanation uh, what he did before, what's he like. There's no description of him. He just shows up. Shows up on the scene. And it calls him Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbi in Gilead. First of all, Gilead is a, is a kind of a no-name place at this time. Uh, the Tishbite, uh, Tishbi uh, means he's a settler. So when you see a, he's a Tishbite of Tishbi, means he's a, one of the settlers of the settling people in Gilead. He's a no-name guy. He doesn't come from a prominent family. He's not coming from Jerusalem. Uh, he just says that Elijah, he's a, one, of the, one of the people who dwells in Gilead, along with the other people who settled that area. But he comes on the scene. He walks up to Ahab, who's the by far the most powerful man in Israel. At that time, I'll describe Ahab and, and a little bit of what the situation was like. Walks up to him and says, Hi. Uh, there's not going to be any rain in your land except by my word. It's not going to rain. It's never going to rain. And not only not rain, but says there's ne- going to be neither dew nor rain. Not even in the morning is there going to be dew on the ground unless I say. And then he leaves. And Ahab is, who was that guy? <laughs> who was that? Always one of the settlers of the settling people in Gilead. No name person. After this, Elijah goes to a brook. God tells him to go to a brook at Cherith. And it says that he's fed by ravens at a brook at Cherith. There's no, no longer any rain. They're waiting for all the water to dry up. It's not raining. The water's not being replenished. So he goes and he lives by a brook, lives next to a brook. God says, go stay at this brook, uh, and I'm going I'm to bring your... I'm going to bring your food via raven, not via Amazon package, but via raven. It's going to drop food for you every day until the brook dries up. It's difficult for us to relate to Elijah. I mean, the donuts were brought not by ravens, right? (laughs) We didn't have ravens fly in the room and drop off our package of donuts this morning. Difficult to relate to Elijah, So Elijah, he's fed by ravens at Cherith. The brook eventually dries up because there's no rain according to Elijah's word. Then he goes to the widow of Zarephath. Zarephath is outside of Israel. He goes to a no-name place outside of Israel, just outside of Israel. He goes to a widow there. And he performs a miracle for this widow. She's gathering sticks. She says, we have no food. We have no ability to provide for ourselves, her and her son. And Elijah performs a miracle, a continuing miracle. And the bowl of flour that she has and the jar of oil are never exhausted. No matter how much she uses it, they're never exhausted. And so he provides for this widow. Again, difficult for us to relate to that. Elijah is an interesting, interesting character. Unfortunately, the the widow's son dies. Soon, we don't know how soon, but fairly soon thereafter, the widow's son dies. Elijah raises him back to life, resuscitates him, brings him back to life. After this point, Elijah goes back to Ahab, this is at a three and a half year marker, this has been three and a half years in the life of Elijah, he goes back to Ahab, and Elijah calls everybody to Mount Carmel, and you guys know the story of Mount Carmel, bringing all of the priests to Mount Carmel, where Elijah not only makes fun of the priests of Baal that are there, uh, but Elijah prays and fire comes down from heaven and consumes the sacrifice that he's offering there. He just prays and fire comes down from heaven. Again, how difficult for us to relate. If I were to make that, if I were to say that prayer, I, I wouldn't be expecting fire to come down from heaven, right? If I, if I make a prayer, if I say a prayer, Lord, would you please send fire down? I'm not going to expect that to happen. So after Mount Carmel, though, all the, the priests of Baal are killed. Elijah loses heart, apparently. He flees from Jezebel. We'll talk about Jezebel in just a little bit. And then it says that God feeds Elijah a meal that lasts him for 40 days. So Elijah flees from Jezebel. He's on his way to Mount Sinai. It's a 40-day journey to get to Mount Sinai, walking. God feeds him one meal that lasts him that 40 days. He makes it all the way to Sinai. And then we have our story of God speaking to Elijah at Sinai. There was a strong wind. There's an earthquake, but he wasn't, But God wasn't in the in the earthquake. It wasn't in the strong wind. There's a fire, but the text says that God wasn't in the fire, and then it says that there was a sound of silence, sound of silence, and God was in that whisper, if you will. God tells Elijah all these things that he needs to accomplish. He's going to anoint a new king on on a bordering kingdom. He tells him to go find Elisha, Elijah just walks up to Elisha and throws his cloak over him and says, Elisha, you're going to follow me now. And Elisha says, right away. There's the story of Naboth's vineyard. Again, Elijah shows up to Ahab and says to Ahab and Jezebel, God's going to kill you. Because of Naboth's vineyard and Ahab who killed and Jezebel who had Naboth killed just so Ahab could get his vineyard. Elijah, Elijah just shows up and says, God's pronouncing judgment against you. He's going, to, he's going to kill you. Here's how it's going to happen. After that as well, Elijah predicts death of Ahab's son, Ahaziah. Predicts his death. He dies. And then at the end of Elijah's life, we have perhaps the most uh, enigmatic story about Elijah. This is a man who's had such a a fascinating, interesting life. And at the end of his life, he doesn't die. He's taken up by a fiery chariot into heaven, it says. What does that look like? What does that look like for us? (laughs) I have no idea what that looked like. It says Elisha was there. And apparently Elijah did not die. He was taken up and a fiery chariot into heaven, and he was no more. They couldn't find him. The only other description of someone like that is Enoch. It says Enoch walked with God, and then he was not, for God took him. It doesn't say that he died. Enoch is listed in a whole uh, list of people who died. It says this person was born, he had this son, and he died. This person was born, he had this son, and he died. And a whole list, and it says Enoch he was born, he had this son, and God was not, and, and he was not, for God took him. What does that look like for us? How can we relate to Elijah? How can we relate to someone like this? Why would James bring this up and use Elijah as his description of someone who he says, "You can relate to Elijah? Learn how to pray from Elijah. You can relate to him. I don't know that I can relate to Elijah in this way. There's not much that I have in common with Elijah necessarily. Uh, Malachi 4.5 says, Behold, I will send you Elijah before the great and awesome day of the Lord. It says, Elijah's going to come again. Malachi 4.5. This is at the end of the Old Testament. It says, Elijah's going to come again and then... The day of the Lord is going to come. And in line with that, Jesus says, John the Baptist, if you will, John the Baptist is, the, is Elijah who was to come in the spirit and power of Elijah. You can take a look at Matthew eleven fourteen 14 for that. And very interestingly, Matthew 17, the transfiguration. Jesus takes his three of his disciples up on, on the mountain and he's transfigured before them. And the two people that Jesus is talking with in the transfiguration is Moses and Elijah. Moses and Elijah. He just shows up on the scene again. Elijah just shows up on the scene. So I don't, it, unless uh, unless you are um, unless you're calling down fire from heaven, you're being fed by ravens. Uh, You got here in a fiery chariot. Uh, Unless that's something that characterizes your life, my guess is that you also have a difficulty in relating to Elijah and who Elijah is. So how can we relate to Elijah? Why does James bring him up? And then also, when we think about the example that James uses, there's lots of things about Elijah, about his prayers, about the story of Elijah, things that he accomplished, but James gives only one example. He says, Elijah prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. The very first story about Elijah comes to Ahab and says, it's not going to rain except by my word. So why does James use Elijah why does he use him as an example of prayer for us and relate us all together? And then why does he use the example of praying that would not, that it would not rain? All right, James could have talked about the prayer of calling down fire from heaven for the sacrifice on Mount Carmel. Why does James do this? Okay, so James says that Elijah was a man with a nature like Ours. Verse 17, James five seventeen. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, okay? I don't normally do this, but I'm going to teach you one Greek word, okay? One Greek word that'll help explain. Again, I don't normally do this, but you guys, you will be able to understand what, you'll be able to guess what this word means. Okay, the word is uh, homoepathes, Homoiopathes. Okay, if you listen to the sound of the, I'm putting on my teacher hat right now. Okay, Uh, if you listen to the sound of the first part, it's two words. Homoi means same, and pathes, like our English word would be pathetic, where we would get pathetic from. Okay, same pathes. Okay, but uh, pathes, pathes has the idea not necessarily of pathetic, but as suffering or enduring something. Okay So James says that Elijah is homoopathes with us. He's of the same struggles, of the same enduring, the same suffering as us. I think this word helps us to understand what James is trying to say, what James is trying to bring across. Because I'm not necessarily going to relate directly to Elijah. I'm not going to see myself as Elijah, you know, part two. But it says that Elijah was of the same sufferings as us, the same enduring as us. So now we need need to ask the question, well, what was was Elijah enduring? And this is where I find the text becomes very interesting and very applicable to us. I want to describe just a little bit about the context of Elijah, what he was up against, what was happening to him, because it is very, very applicable for us today. Elijah... Elijah was up against Ahab. Uh, Ahab's father, Omri, uh, was a very famous king. There's not much as described about him in the Old Testament, but he was a very famous king. The Assyrians knew the land of Israel as the land of Omri. Uh, they knew it as the land of Omri. Omri was a military captain. Uh, he became king. Uh, he's actually the third dynasty, if you will, of the northern kingdom of Israel. There's a bunch of assassinations that took place, and eventually Omri comes to power. He gains political power. Omri was the army commander. He was made commander, made king by the people. You can read in 1 Kings 16, it says that Omri built Samaria, the capital city of the northern kingdom. The description of Omri was that he acted more wickedly than all those who were before him. 1 Kings 16.25. He acted more wickedly than all kings who were before him. Okay, There's several kings who were before him. There's Jeroboam, who started out in the northern kingdom. Jeroboam introduced idol worship into Israel. Jeroboam has a son. That son is murdered on the throne by Basha. Basha comes in, starts a new a new reign, a new dynasty. And Basha is more wicked, more evil than Jeroboam and his son. And then Basha's son comes to the throne, and he's more evil, more wicked than Basha. And that son, Elah, is assassinated. The person who assassinated him sat on the throne for a total of seven days. A total of seven days before Omri came to the throne. And Zimri, the one who assassinated Basha's son, uh, he was killed as well. So Omri comes to the throne, and he's had a whole successive lineage of kings who have come before him who are wicked. They introduce idol worship. There's all kinds of things, wickedness, that they introduced into Israel, into the northern kingdom. And Omri outdoes them all. Omri outdoes them all. He acted more wickedly than all of those who were before him. Uh, turn to First Kings sixteen. I just want to read a quick description. First Kings sixteen. Okay, so Omri reigns several years, and uh, again, the description, he acted more wickedly than all those who were before him. And then verse uh, 1 Kings 16, 29, in the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, the son of Omri, began to reign over Israel. And Ahab the son of Omri reigned over Israel and Samaria twenty-two years. Ahab the son of Omri did evil in the sight of Yahweh more than all those who were before him, more than Omri, who was more than Baasha, who was more than Jeroboam. It says, uh, verse 31, And as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians. And he went and he served Baal and worshipped him. He erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. It says Ahab made an ashra. He did more to provoke Yahweh, the God of Israel, to anger than all of the kings of Israel who were before him. So now we start to see a description of the culture of Israel. What's going on in Israel at that time? Wickedness is just increasing, folding over on itself multiple times. Every time a new king comes to power, things get worse. There's more wickedness, there's more evil, there's more rebellion while I was studying this and studying the history of Israel at this time and trying to understand everything that was going on, it just kept striking me parallels that we have with our own culture. It seems like every time there's a new person who comes to power, something new happens, things just get worse and worse and worse and worse. Honestly, our culture, uh, our culture is, it's, very, very different, of course, than Israel, but uh, Israel, I would argue, was further advanced in their wickedness than even we are today. The things that were incorporated into Baal worship, the things that were just generally accepted in the culture, were horrible. Even Jezebel's father, her name, his name is Ethbaal, all that that name means is with Baal. He defined himself, his name was, I'm with Baal. And his his whole name is, I'm with Baal. I'm a follower, I'm dedicated, I'm wholeheartedly devoted to Baal. And Ahab says, let me look for a wife. Oh, Ethbaal, I'll marry his daughter. It's a great decision, okay? So Ahab, he's... Spoiled from his youth, incredibly rich. He gets everything that he asks for. We see that with Nabus' vineyard. He marries Jezebel, who's a manipulative, evil woman, obsessed with Baal worship. But Ahab has total control, total authority, and he ruled with absolute authority. Enter Elijah. The Tishbite from Tishbe in Gilead. The nobody. Elijah, he's not from Jerusalem. He doesn't have a big name. Nobody knows who this guy is. He walks up to Ahab and says, it's not going to rain for three and a half years, except by my word. How did Elijah know that? What gave Elijah the idea that he can walk up to Ahab, possibly the, the wickedest ruler up until that point, he can walk up to Ahab, walk up to Jezebel, and say, it's not going to rain for three and a half years. Did he guess that? How did, where did he get that from? Turn over to Deuteronomy 11. Deuteronomy 11. Deuteronomy 11 verse 13. These are promises that God is giving to Israel. Good and bad, okay? Eleven thirteen. If you, if you, meaning Israel, if you will indeed obey my commandments that I command you today to love Yahweh your God, to serve Him with all your heart and with all your soul, He will give you the rain for your land in its season—the early rain and the later rain—so that you may gather in your grain and your wine and your oil. He will give grass in your fields for your livestock. You shall eat and be full. Take care lest your heart be deceived you turn aside and serve other gods and worship them then the anger of yahweh will be kindled against you he will shut up the heavens so that there will be no rain and the land will yield no fruit you will perish quickly off the good land that yahweh is giving you elijah's just read in deuteronomy now elijah's a prophet which is completely different we're not prophets today But Elijah's reading Deuteronomy, and he's saying, Deuteronomy, God promises this. God tells Elijah, go to Ahab. God tells Elijah, go to Mount Carmel, go to Sinai. God's telling him these things. He's a prophet, very different from us. But I want us to see the basis of Elijah's confidence, the basis of Elijah's prayers. It's rooted in exactly what God has said. If you follow after me, Israel, if you follow after me, you keep my commandments, it's going to rain. Rain was everything in Israel. It wasn't like Egypt where you had yearly floods that would fertilize the ground and water the ground. It wasn't like that. They relied on rain. They had to have rain at very specific points. Three and a half years with no rain is more of a drought than anything that California has ever seen. We have the ability to store up food much better than Israel did at that time. In three and a half years, there is no food left in Israel. In three and a half years, there's no grass for the cattle. There's nothing left. How does Elijah know that? He reads Deuteronomy. God says, Yahweh tells Israel, if you're going to follow after other gods, if you're going to give yourself and devote yourself to idols, this is what's going to happen to you. God makes a promise, and all Elijah's doing is saying, God, I'm praying that you abide by your promise. He's not making something up about God that God didn't say. Elijah's not, Elijah's not saying it's by my promise power. Elijah understands this is Yahweh He's made a promise. This is Yahweh's power. It's not going to rain. And if you remember on Mount Carmel at the end of that whole episode, after they kill all the prophets of Baal, 450 and 400 prophets of Asherah, they kill them all. Israel's heart is changed over. Elijah goes and he sends his servant to go look for a rain cloud. This is right after they killed the false prophets. He sends him to go look for a rain cloud. He sends him seven times to go look for a rain cloud. And eventually he comes back on the seventh time and says, I see a tiny little cloud far off in the distance coming from the Mediterranean. And Elijah says, you better start running because it's going to rain. And it pours down rain because they did what they were supposed to do, killed the prophets of Baal. So now, turn back to James, back to James 5. So James is describing Elijah. He says, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. In other words, he was a man who has the same struggle, the same enduring. We can relate to Elijah on his enduring, his struggling. Elijah had to struggle with the culture of his time, a culture of death, a culture of idol worship, a culture that was completely opposed to God. And James says, you can relate to Elijah Because no matter what time period that you're in, we think especially of today, but no matter what time period that you're in, you, if you're righteous, you're struggling against your culture. And you're struggling against a culture of death, a culture that hates God, a culture that is perpetually moving towards wickedness. Uh, this person, whoever is raised up, whatever leader, acts more wickedly than the one who came before him. Jeroboam, Baasha, Omri, Ahab, Ahab's son, on and on. Elijah is struggling against that culture. Well, the way that Elijah confronts that culture, the way that Elijah, according to James, the way that Elijah interacts with that culture is by invoking the name of God, by prayer. And I want you to see especially, uh, about halfway through verse 16, James 5, 16, it says, The prayer of a righteous person has great power. The prayer of a righteous person. What defines Elijah. We went through these different stories of Elijah. We saw all the different aspects of who Elijah was, the crazy, fantastical things that he did and were done through him. But what kind of person is Elijah described as? He's a righteous man. He's unhindered. He's unhindered. He's completely dedicated to Yahweh. Completely dedicated to Yahweh. He's unhindered. How many times uh, when we think about our own prayer, our own prayer life, do you find that there's hindering in your prayer when you come before God and you remember something that you're harboring, something that you're holding, something you're holding on to, like Israel held on to the idols of Baal, something in your heart that's hindering you in your prayer? Something that stops you from coming before God as a father and appealing to God. Elijah was unhindered. He was a righteous man, is described. He says, I know what the promises of God are. I know what God has said. I'm going to come to God, appeal to him, and I'm going to expect that God will act according to his promises that he's made. So let's ask. I want want you to ask yourself, I want you to ask yourself, what hinders you, what stops you from prayer? What stops your prayer life? Maybe some of you are fantastic prayer warriors, and it's something that's just on the front of your mind all the time. That's fantastic. But I know that there are times where, in my own life even, there are times where I feel like I'm praying much, I'm praying often, I'm praying for any, when something comes up, I'm in prayer. Other times things just get busy, and the busyness of life comes over me. And prayer might not be the first thing that comes into my mind when a problem comes up, when something happens. It may not be my first reaction. Is the busyness of life something that's a hindrance to you? It might even be good busyness. You might be someone who is busy for the kingdom, who's working hard, working diligently, trying to accomplish all of these things. Not necessarily bad to be busy, but is the busyness of life something that is hindering you in your prayer? Hindering you in having that first response The problem, the issue is with the busyness of life as it comes up is that we rely on our own strength. That's really the the root of that problem, that we're relying on our own strength. The busyness of life comes up, I've got all these things to do, I've got to do them, I've got to get them done. They've got to happen and that we end up relying on our own strength and it's a side thought That, oh, I need help from God to accomplish this. I need help from God to do whatever it is that I'm trying to accomplish. Again, it might be a wonderful thing, an excellent thing you're trying to accomplish. But the busyness of life, moving prayer from out of the front of your mind leads to you relying on your own strength. There's a uh, an excellent story of Martin Luther who uh, quoted as saying, uh, "I have he woke up in the morning. I have so many things to get done today. That means that I need to spend an extra hour in prayer in the morning in order to get all of these things done." We don't think like that usually. Luther thought, "I need to spend. An, I need to wake up an extra hour early, pray for an extra hour." because I've got so many things that I need to get done, and I have to pray for these things, I should pray for these things, because that's where the efficaciousness is, that's where the power is. You relying on your own strength to get everything done goes only so far. When God is working on your behalf, how much greater is that? Perhaps a hindrance in your own prayer life is not understanding what prayer is accomplishing. Perhaps you think, doesn't God already know these things? Why do I need to tell him? Doesn't doesn't God know these things? Isn't God taking care of these things? Why do I need to go and tell him something that he already knows? What's the purpose of that? What's the point of that? I find that the best understanding, the best uh, metaphor of prayer is a child coming to their father. The father already knows, but the child appeals to the character, to the nature, to the promises of their father, of their parent, and says, Please, would you do this? You promised this. Would you do this? On my behalf. We need to see prayer more in that regard. Perhaps you think, God already knows this. Why, why do I need to remind him? Why do I need to pray and remind him of these things? Isn't he already working? Isn't he already doing all of this? That's, a, that's not viewing the relationship between you and God correctly. Correctly. As a child coming to a father, father should know best. Perhaps the father has to say, no, that's not good for you, that's not appropriate at this time. I have different plans in mind. But the child still comes and appeals, appeals to the promises that were made, appeals to the character, the nature of who God is. God, would you please do this for me? I need help, I need wisdom. I need grace, I need kindness, I need patience. Would you help me? Would you work these things in me? Would you make me more effective? Would you give me the, the strength that I need every day? I I'm tired of relying on my own strength to accomplish everything every day. There are so many things that I have to get done. I'm tired of relying on my own strength in those regards. God, would you please give me the strength that I need? Would you please help me? I appeal to you on your promises. James, uh, excellent promise. Anyone who asks for wisdom, God gives graciously. That's a promise. That's a direct promise. If you pray to God and say, God, you said in the book of James, anyone who asks for wisdom, you'll give them wisdom. God, I'm asking for wisdom right now because I need wisdom. God will give it to you. It's a direct promise. We pray based on the character, the nature of God. Elijah knew the promises of God. Elijah appealed to the promises of God. Elijah was a man who was unhindered in his prayer. We need to do away with the the busyness, the relying on our own strength and unbelief in the power of prayer. We need to do away with all of these things. Relate to Elijah. Look towards Elijah. Not because Elijah's taken up in heaven by a fiery chariot and calls down fire from heaven to consume a sacrifice, but because Elijah was a man just like us. He's living in a culture of death. He's living in a culture that's turned away from God, that hates God. And Elijah is appealing to God to say, I want you to change this culture. I want you to transform this culture. And we need to see prayer in that regard. Again, James, ultimately, he's painting a picture of Christ. Throughout the whole book of James, he's painting this picture saying, this is who Christ was. This is who Christ is is. And we see with Elijah, one of those small paintings. Who is the one who appealed the best to God? Christ. Who is the one who was the most unhindered in prayer? Who was the righteous one, the righteous sufferer who appealed to God? Christ. But James says, look at Elijah too. Take a look at this example. Be encouraged by that. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we come to you and we desire, Lord, to be people of prayer. We, we desire to be defined by prayer, uh, that whenever um, problems arise, whenever praises arise and blessings come or difficulties come, that our first thought would be towards prayer, that our first thought would be towards praise and, and reminder, Lord, of who you are, asking you for help in whatever situation, whatever circumstance that we're in. Father, we pray that you would help us to be reminded of that. Work that into our hearts. Work that into our minds that we would not forget. Help us to be dedicated to you in prayer. We're thankful, Lord, that you never change, that we can rely and trust on your promises. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to also encourage others around us to be people of prayer, to be encouraging and and spurring each other on towards love, good deeds, to prayer, we thank you, Lord, for Christ. We thank you for the work you've done on our behalf. We thank you for the example of Elijah in the book of James. We pray sings the name of Jesus. Amen.